Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Baton Salon. This is Jeff Kepin back today to host today's episode, and I'm thrilled to welcome Stephen Smith, Vice President of People Analytics at Rework, to the salon to talk to us about emerging trends in the workplace. Earlier this year, Baton Global and Rework teamed up with the Greater Des Moines Partnership to conduct the Workforce Trends and Occupancy Study. This innovative research project asked over 10,000 knowledge workers from the region's largest organizations to share with us their views on how and where they do their best work, the cultures in their organizations, and what they need moving forward to perform at their very best. Today's podcast will explore the findings and themes that emerged not only from the study itself, but also from our conversations with leaders across the country over the last six months. Stephen, please say hello and provide us a bit of your background for our listeners. No bye. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Stephen. Background, uh, raised as a military kid, kind of moved around the country. Got my education in industrial organizational psychology, the kind of study of people. I got my first job here in Iowa, of all places, to do uh, kind of HR business intelligence, surveys, analytics, understanding how people work and using the data to prove it. After that, I got a sweet opportunity to go to our corporate real estate side, which is all about the physical workspace, news to me, and really saw how place was being determined for people. Since that time, I've joined a company, Rework, as you had indicated, and our focus is kind of closing that gap between people and place and how those come together to really create performance. So that's me in a nutshell. Excellent. Could you please tell us a little bit about how the study, this Workforce Trends and Occupancy Study that we conducted earlier this year, how it came about and its main goals at the outset? And how it has evolved since data was collected earlier this year? Well, I mean, uh, so Des Moines was asking the questions that I think a lot of people and organizations and communities around the country and world are asking. How does this now, you know, rapidly evolving future of work going to impact me, my businesses, and ultimately my communities? Historically, what organizations and metros have done is they've gone out, looked at best practices. They've also done roundtables with the CEOs and the leaders to understand, you know, what trends do they see? Now, the problem with that or the opportunity for us was, you know, it's great to get that information. Those are big pieces, but, you know, your city and your metro might be different than someone else's. I think understanding best practice is the same way a doctor would know, you know, the worldwide web of information. But when it comes time to prescribe, I want the doctor to know me and my body, my unique circumstances. And that's what we kind of wanted to add into the mix, not just benchmark information, but let's understand the future of work from the source itself. And that's the second part. The source itself is the people. Rather than getting perspectives of leaders, which are also important, of course, but actually measuring the hundreds of thousands of workers that are in a metro to understand what are those shifts, what are those trends, and how does our local region or regions start to influence that type of work? Once we unlock that, now we can start to fast forward and say, all right, well, based on these changes, here's how business is going to evolve. And based on how business is going to evolve, here are the decisions we need to make as a larger community to really make sure that we're maximizing, honestly, the opportunities and the investments that we have in our businesses and our people. And as you went to the source, uh, what were some of the largest stories that emerged and uh, that we heard from the participating organizations? Hmm. Yeah, so, so there are a few, but maybe I'll cover two. One maybe behavioral, one attitudinal, because both of those are size the coin. When it came to behavioral, what we did is ask people, you know, where they're spending their time and, and which activities are filling their days. And after we understood those from a list of 20 activities, 
Then we ask them to rack and stack those based on the value of that time and that task has towards them meeting their job roles and success. What are the things that are gonna help you actually hit your goals and get the promotion and, and all of those things? And what we found out is one of the largest, most frequent activities that's happening across these, you know, we, we would set these things out to 12,000 people. One of the things that came out as the most frequent activity were these formal meetings. And listen, we've known that, you know, formal meetings have kind of been a drag since Dilbert came out 50 years ago in cartoon strips. The difference is now we're starting to be able to quantify those hours and realize that not only are we spending a lot of time doing it, it was the second to least most valuable activity that people were doing across the board. So push come to shove, if, if we're thinking about opportunities as communities and as organizations, great resignation and getting more of our talent, you know, one of the first things we need to look at is internally at ourselves. We're constantly looking to bring in more talent and do different things, but in reality, there's a great utilization opportunity. These organizations are sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars of labor spent based on $100 an hour or whatever calculation you want to use, just spent in time that isn't adding any extra value to the organization. So maybe the first one in terms of behavioral is this idea of uh, meetings and productivity that can be gained. And I think we've seen multiple publications, including one that came out today, $100 million lost in formal meetings every year. And listeners, please write agendas, have decisions, have ownership, and make sure that your meetings are not things that could be covered in an email and just a bunch of FYI newsletters because uh, you don't trust people to, to read and take in information. So formal meetings, not very valuable. That was one insight. Uh, what's the second? Probably the second one I thought was probably the most fun on the attitudinal side is we use that this methodology to understand what matters most to employees when it comes to working for their organization. So, you know, in a typical survey, you have a certain amount of questions on a scale of one to five, uh, and you answer all those questions. The problem is when that data comes back, knowing which item actually matters the most, the one with the lowest overall satisfaction or one with the highest amount of dissatisfaction or one furthest away from the trend or the benchmark or whatever. So instead what we do is we throw all of those kind of or traditional organizational constructs on the board, you know, leadership and, and pay and, and, and connection and connectivity and all these things and say, all of these pieces matter to you as an employee. But first, I want you to pick the five that matter most, good or bad. And then once you pick those five, then tell me how much you like them or don't like them. So for the first time ever, we're able to start to understand trade-offs and therefore prioritize our energy and efforts on the things that matter the most to the most amount of people. Now, you can slice and dice that by different age groups. We got a lot of cool, you know, much more detailed stories. But in general, we focus on what are the things, at least in, you know, these individual organizations, or in this case, the study, that employees care most about when it comes to working. Therefore, this is their employee value proposition, things that matter most. And there's really three things. So the first one that mattered the most amount of people was salary. The second one was work-life balance. And the third one was benefits. Now, work-life benefits, or work-life balance, excuse me, and benefits, number two and three, were actually very highly ranked for employees here in this community, uh, which is great. But the first one, salary, was rated really low. Now, I've done you know surveys all over the world for 10 years. No one's ever happy with their salary when it comes time to a, a survey, right? I mean, nobody's an idiot. Nobody's ever going to be happy, uh, except the executives when you slice some dice by that group. So that's always been a thing. But for us, we've never actually seen it crawl to the very top. And this is across a very large population. 
And I think based on, you know, what we expected in terms of obviously inflation's high and buying power's down low and, you know, wage disputes and all of these things, we assumed that this is an economic sign of the time. But as we went to those 18 different organizations and talked to them about, you know, what we were seeing and what we assumed in this one, they all kind of told us something different. They told us this was not about just economics. This is because now in this wild west of remote working, you know, talented employers and large organizations all across the country and world are starting to steal my talents. And remote work has unlocked that ability because now let's say a mighty Google in California, 10% below Google prices is still 10% above maybe our company's prices. And they offer complete flexibility. So if all things be considered equal, I can get complete flexibility and a raise by going to this company that's not located in my hometown. And that's why we're starting to have a pinch in certain parts of the country, because like it or not, those who allow these certain things for certain employers in certain positions will win that rat race. So really understanding how this remote world is unlocking talent mobility and what that's doing to different regions is going to influence the offerings that those companies need to make to make edit. So that was probably the second biggest one that I found interesting. Excellent. We'll come back to the future of work in a moment. Before we leave this study behind, were there any big shifts or surprises in the data that, that really caught your attention? Well, that one we just mentioned was a surprise, but I think because the word shift was used, we also do this thing, which is a cultural analysis based on Karen Equay's uh, competing values framework. In that model, what we do is we ask employees to determine and, and to distribute amount of, uh, let's say, points into a model to really define what the current culture of an organization feels like. Is it you know very competitive or is it very innovative? Is it very collaborative or is it very controlling? Once we get that idea of what the current organizational climate or culture looks like, we ask those exact same questions again, but say if the organization, your organization, were to reach its highest aspirational goals in the next five years, what would the culture feel like then? And then we plot those two things against each other. So now we have a current state of culture and a future state of culture. And what this actually does is shows us the shift that needs to be made. Because the research shows, you know, the directions obviously tell you different things. But the level of alignment between current and ideal future has a direct impact on organizational team performance. You will perform financially better against your peers the more aligned those two states of culture are. So I think when we think about shifts, and one of the things that honestly made the biggest shift amongst the subcomponents was the culture of leadership. When we looked at the culture of management in terms of how you're you know, led on a day-by-day basis, that alignment was much better. But when it came to the culture of leadership, generally speaking, top of the house, that gap was pretty big. And the culture of leadership, honestly, usually comes down to things like how do we communicate and motivate employees? Because these are the people who are sending out the messages and the rah-rah, well, depending upon that culture, to really get employees to where, to see the vision, follow the plan. And the shift was very large for us. And, you know, these are 18 organizations. The overwhelming feeling was that leadership primarily communicates and motivates through a spirit of competition. Harder, more, faster, longer, better. And once we win, we win again. And we win and we win and we win. And when we ask people, what does that look like in the future? What's that needed shift? Actually, employees still acknowledge the fact and apparently like the fact that they're competitive and they're winning. But they want to be motivated by more of that collaborative quadrant, more of that quadrant where people talk about mission, vision, values, goals, purposes, like remind me why I'm doing this. No, you're not just a person that's going to get a paycheck. 
you are a person that's delivering a service that changes people's lives, right? How does our leadership begin to communicate with still, you know, heavy expectations for outcome and performance, but also be able to preach that collaboration, true collaboration, and the things that actually motivates and inspires people to do more than they thought they could. As you've shared this message with regional leaders, what has their reaction been? Is it one of embrace? Is it one of skepticism? Are they asking you for, tell me what to do next? What have those conversations looked like? Well, uh, the good news is when we show leaders this data, because of its dynamicism and, and, and the way we create trade-offs and all these things, we never have skepticism. People lean in. And then at that point, they do one of two things. Half of uh, our leaders will say, you know, this is exactly what I thought. This validates everything else, you know, thinking and giving me the ammo I need to now go pull the trigger and make some decisions, which is awesome for us. And then the other half is that, oh my gosh, I had no idea. This is a surprise. This is a shock. I love this. Tell me more. Oh, God help me. In both cases, though, the end outcome is the same, which is getting a different kind of information set that we're used to that isn't a check of the box, but actually drives some you know, intelligent decisions. So it's been, a, it's been a fun little tour we've taken since. Very nice. And these were all knowledge workers, uh, primarily in large firms. And many of the HR leaders with whom we speak are thinking about the future work, how work is evolving, what's going to happen next. As you think about that, what are the main trends that leaders should be taking into account as they consider the future of their talent pool? Well, I'll probably start with the more of a high-level philosophical saying, which is probably not very helpful for anyone that's listening, but you know, I think as we start to splice and dice data by age groups, what matters most and all these things, creating freedom within a framework is something that I keep coming back to. Despite some of the books we may have read, I do not believe that we necessarily need to let the inmates run the asylum, right? But I do believe that freedom is going to be the future now. I mean, I don't want to sound like Mill Gibson at the end of Braveheart, but I do believe that this is something that's not going back. You know, these feelings of autonomy, we always heard in psychology and we've tried to prove over and over again, these feelings of trust and psychological safety, all of these things, when checked with actual performance metrics and goals, have been shown to absolutely destroy the quote unquote competition. So how do I create a framework that still makes sure that we are being responsible, you know, stewards of resources, but while simultaneously giving that feeling of trust, transparency and freedom? And I think this is going to come down to carrots and not sticks. We're seeing that shift happen now. I mean, it even permeates in the way I see organizations thinking of their place and policy solutions and, and three days on and two days off. And I don't know which three days and which team needs overlap with which team. And I still think that seems to be the same kind of boxed rigid thinking that we had before. It's just one or two days less. And that's why it still seems really hard. I think it's actually easier to do something from days in office to percentage of time of your week in office. That subtle shift can still be 60%, which calculates three days, but man, I don't know. I'm a 35-year-old guy, just turned that. So now for me, and before, honestly, even the pandemic, I was going to the office five days a week. Your badge reader would tell me I'm there every day. But in reality, I was going in five days a week for four hours a day. I'd get in the morning where people are peppy and had their coffee and we're having good meetings, we're collaborating for real but after lunch and the third bowl of pasta, man, my employees would come back and tired and lethargic. And that's not a really awesome environment for me. So I'd skip out, go home, honestly, probably take a run, take a shower. 
clap out a couple more hours, feeling berated about myself, and honestly ahead of the competition, quote unquote, or collaborative teammates in this case. But again, all that's to say, if I were to think about the big trend from our perspective and mine, it'd be creating freedom within a framework. Well, I think we know that socio-technical systems are trying to balance control and coordination. Uh, and you're sort of pointing to enabling coordination through the incentive system rather than weighing on control through the sticks, as you frame it, and not punishing, not monitoring, micromanaging people in ways that make them feel like they can't really thrive and get the work done over time. We've talked some, and many people now are talking about the rise of automation. And as you were looking at the workers' attitudes and behaviors, is that reflected in any way in the kinds of work they find valuable uh, in the way their days are organized? Yes. So that's a great segue. I'm not sure if you meant to do that, but yeah. So when we talked about that behavioral piece in the beginning and what kind of things are you doing and what are the stories we're finding, you know, one of the things when we ask people about each of those activities they're doing and the relative value it has in terms of success in their role, all of the activities that were deemed very complex skills. So analyzing, programming, coaching, designing, coordinating, planning, those are the activities that uh, employees indicated are very complex or novel, new, not done the same way every time, not routine, requires expert judgment. Now, those are, again, coincidentally, the activities that were very important to me doing a good job in my role. Uh, activities that were less important, push come to shove against all the others, were the activities that were deemed as less collaborative and less complex, right? These are things like Searching for information, writing, making phone calls, archiving, those formal, dang formal meetings, things like corresponding. And when we see that, what it tells us, and honestly, I think there's an article by Inc. recently that talked about, you know, LinkedIn going to Google and saying, hey, we need to have more creative, powerful, high-performing workforce. How in the heck are y'all hiring? CEO to CEO. And Google said, oh, we're not hiring on rote memory. We're hiring on complex problem thinking skills, right? We can teach those kind of people anything. We can't teach, you know, people who do not have the proclivity to do that to survive in a rapidly moving world. And if that's the case, we're seeing that same kind of data, right? If people are telling us that the complex judgment-oriented work is where it's at, those are the things that are going to be less likely to be automated. It is the work that are, are, are considered to be less complex, less collaborative, that are right for such automation. When we look at things like corresponding and we look for things like archiving and making phone calls and writing, I mean, you're already seeing simple tools that could drastically influence the time spent on these activities that are adding value. I mean, you just showed me Calendly recently and I'm embarrassed to say I'm just now playing with that myself, but my Lord, how much time does it take to uh, look at calendars and, and think about that anyway? When it comes to single sourcing your, your, you know, your all your inputs for your information on your desktop, when it comes to the dang mail merge function, uh, all of these things are sometimes little things that don't even need to be full automation. But how do we start to continue to use technology and processes to really make sure that we're saving our organizations time, energy, and money? Right, ultimately. Excellent. Um, I've seen you post in other talks some leading practices to help leaders and managers when they're dealing with their remote and in-person workforces, in part from your prior studies and from what the survey introduced and reinforced. I wonder if you could share a couple of those insights with the, the listeners. 
Well, yeah. So, you know, the first one I talk about always is, is creating psychological safety. We know the power of psychological safety in terms of building great teams. If not, check out Google's Aristotle project. But we know the impact that psychological safety has on teams in terms of culture. Some people still are struggling to figure out how do we implement that in our culture. And that's maybe a different conversation because what I'm speaking of right now is the psychological safety of our assessments. You know, you can't manage what you don't measure, but if y'all measure really bad, you're going to get junk in and junk out. And we see that all the time, right? Like in traditional engagement surveys or leadership satisfaction surveys, hey, on a scale of one to five, how much do you like your boss? Well, it depends. My boss standing behind me, you're going to see the answers as soon as I'm done. And if so, yeah, five, best boss I ever had, right? There's no, there's no chance I'm going to step into that landmine. I worked for an organization once where we had done a complete campus renovation and, you know, all the uh, individual contributors were working in the bullpen in the office and all the VPs and above had, you know, obviously the traditional hierarchical, nice offices with wood grain and, and window space and all that jazz. But the real estate department was still interested about how those offices are being used. So what did we do? We went to seat sensors, a popular way of measuring how much and what kind of space do I need in uh, my future workspace. By the way, y'all, that's not the best way to do it. As you'll find out, we put seat sensors in all of those offices on the chairs. And what we were finding was that every time one of these, you know, high-powered employees that are making big decisions and making probably millions of dollars more than I am, Every time they leave their desk to go to a meeting, to get a glass of water, to go to lunch, to hit the gym, what do they do? They take a big stack of books and place them in their chairs to trick the, to trick the sensors into believing that they're still there. Why? Because psychological safety is gone. Why in the hell are y'all putting sensors on my chair? Am I going to lose my office? No, thank you. Not going to happen on my watch. So as much as we like to pretend that our data was clean, it was dirty to begin with. So again, when we start to think about psychological safety, this is really where we talk about, you know, individual attributes versus team attributes. It's one thing to go talk to your leadership about him or her being a good or bad leader. Man, that's really tough. But instead of talking about, you know, the culture of leadership, well, that takes off the defenses a bit. When it comes to, you know, trying to measure things, even like office utilization, when we ask employees, where did you, where do you, where would you, in terms of percentages in the future, our past data is really, really close to those, you know, badge data sensors and, and all those things. And I think ultimately, when we start to think about how do we measure what matters most to employees, we're not going to get that from counting keystrokes in Microsoft Office. What we're going to get that from is having trusting conversations with our employees to get you know the juice, so to speak. So building psychological safety in the way you assess, I think is really important. Maybe I'll do one more because I don't want to take up all your time, but it's simple as it sounds, prioritization. There's a thousand metrics out there. There's so many things that we can look at. And obviously, there's not a lot of noise. I think it was uh, Warren Buffett that said, take your list of top 10 things to do and throw away the bottom eight. Now go do those two really well. So as we start to think about you know, what needs to be prioritized, in both in terms of our attention, let's avoid the analysis paralysis, but also in terms of alignment with goals, let's not create a goal to be more innovative, yet we're punishing people for defects and errors, right? How do we prioritize the things that actually matter? And that's where, again, without saying that word too many times, methodology really, really matters. So maybe the sake of time, I'll leave those two. If we have more, I'm happy to talk more. But you you know I'm not letting you off the podcast without talking about the OODA loops. So just <laughs> yeah. tell the story, my friend. All right, okay. All right, so the OODA loop is a military term. My, my pops was a pilot. And 
the OODA loop is something they taught pilots in the military when it comes to dogfighting. And the OODA loop has now been, you know, used by organizational you know, management theory around the world. But the OODA loop stands for observing, orienting, deciding, and acting. My dad always told me the pilot that won the dogfight was not the one with the fastest plane or the fanciest uh, weapons or even the one that had the goose in the back of the cockpit. The pilot that won was the one that could get through that mental loop the fastest, this iterative thinking process to observe what's happening, to orient yourself, then to make a decision and act. And the one that could go through that was the fastest loop was the one that won the dogfight. So similarly, when we think about the best practices for analytics, man, we need to be much more iterative. We are seeing, you know, once a year engagement surveys and we're going to go build a new campus. Let's send a, you know, one-time survey on that or let's do a one-time, you know, badge data pull over the wrong months because everyone's on vacation that month or all these different things. We need to normalize the use of data. And to do that, it needs to be more reflective. It needs to be more dynamic. It needs to be shorter, faster, better user interface, and it needs to actually point to truth. Because the faster that we, you know, observe what's going on and orient ourselves in it, make a decision and, and act on it, the faster that we're able to win our own dogfights for our businesses, our communities, and obviously for our ecosystems. And that's where psychological safety comes right back in. Because if you're udaing in a unsafe environment, I've told Stephen in the past that in my first corporate job. Every survey, we would all lie about our department, our age, our gender, and our function. Well, what kind of data did the company really have to make decisions at that point? Because it was all skewed and nonsense. And it was once a year and nothing happened with it, probably because it was garbage. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for those of you thinking about embarking on an analytics journey or wanting to enhance your use of data to make decisions, whether it's in the human capital space or other parts of the business, it is, of course, vital that you have reliable, valid information on a regular basis uh, that, that I think you said measures the truth and gets to the goal of whatever the strategy is over time. Well, I appreciate your coming to the salon. Any final words of wisdom or anything, words of encouragement uh, you'd like to share with the audience as they think about 2023 and beyond? I am not a leader, but based on our findings, I would communicate and motivate you to say that we're all in this together. There's still no silver bullets. Let's try to find the answers in an iterative way together. And uh, you made it this far. Thanks for listening. Excellent. Well, not a leader. That's a lie, but I'm not going to slap you upside the head on the podcast. Thank you for listening to our conversation about the future of work today. If you'd like more information on the study we've been discussing, please go to www.wtos.ai like artificial intelligence. And for more on how you can leverage tools and Stephen's wisdom to help your own teams, please visit www.rework.com. We look forward to welcoming you back to the salon soon for another engaging conversation on the opportunities and challenges that lie before us. Bye now.